Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is sponsored this week by Lazy Boy Home Furnishings in Amarillo. You know Lazy Boy as a national brand, but some of its stores are independently owned and operated. And the one in Amarillo is owned by the Hawkins family, who live right here in town. Lazy Boy offers customizable furniture so you can design a look that fits you and your budget. With special financing and a lot of different products, and almost everything they sell is American-made. It's way more than just recliners. Visit Amarillo's locally owned Lazy Boy Home Furnishings today at 3636 Sansi. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I also want to give a podcast shout out to Boyd's Equipment, a patio and grill store on Canyon Drive, online at boydsequipment.com, and to Gooden's Jewelry, locally owned on Olson Boulevard and at goodensjewelryamarillo.com. Today's guest is Dr. Katie Blake. Katie has a PhD in social psychology and is a psychology instructor at Amarillo College. She's also a master's level yoga instructor. But one of her true passions is an online platform she uses to connect with women. Katie is based in Amarillo, but she has clients all over the globe, from Africa to Australia, and she supports them through the process of religious deconstruction. That's the process of reevaluating what you believe spiritually and why. Now, all of those things are enough to intrigue me. So I asked Katie to be on the show and explain more about what she does. So here's Dr. Katie Blake. Dr. Katie Blake, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is a real treat. Good. Well, it's uh, it's a treat for me. I'm, I'm honored to have you on the show. Um, I want to start the interview process with you, just like I do with every guest, and ask you how you ended up in this area in the first place. So what brought you to Amarillo? Yeah, my husband brought me here. Okay. So we met on the internet. It doesn't Did sound, <laughs> it's not as like scary as it sounds. We met on eHarmony, which in those okay. days was like kind of common. Neil Clark Warren. Yeah, that's right. Who's a social psychologist, by the way. That's right. Um, yeah, so I was living in Houston and I met my husband, Matthew, who uh, was living here. And I was kind of interested in a new adventure. Um yeah, living in Houston, I was tired of the hurricanes, which is kind of current and relevant right now, and just the traffic and just the idiosyncrasies of the town, and uh, came across his profile, and we had a lot of commonalities and uh, shared friends, and um, yeah, so I made the big move and came up here to experience the panhandle and fall in love. How long ago was that? Oh, that was 2012 when I moved. Okay. So yeah, it's been almost 10 years, which is really hard to believe. So I'm really interested in eHarmony um, <laughs> because, you know, everybody knows stuff like Tinder and Match.com right. and stuff like eHarmony is a really in-depth... Science. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of aspects of personality and Man. outlook and all that kind of stuff. I mean, do you feel like... Like it worked. I mean, the match was was really good because of all that process. Yeah. So I actually have colleagues from graduate school who worked for eHarmony. Okay. And so it's a bunch of social scientists. And I don't know if anyone listening ever filled out a profile on eHarmony. Like it's not just a swipe right if you think this it's person's not, attractive. It's not. It's like an hour long, you know, questionnaire asking you all the things that you're okay with, all the things you're not okay with, personality, like you mentioned. And so there really is a science behind it. I don't know 
know if the website still exists. I might have to do some research on that. But yeah, it definitely did a great job of matching you with people who had similar, you know, just commonalities, but also goals and that kind of thing. And so it was a great way for us to enter into a marriage and a relationship. Okay, good. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear it worked. It worked for me. That was I, their So the, the, other, the other thing that's interesting is like Houston to Amarillo is about as far of a journey as you can oh. take and still remain within the same state. Oh, man. <laughs> um, what was your perspective on Amarillo before you came here? Yeah, so I had a brief stint in Lubbock. Um, okay. Actually, both of my parents are like huge Red Raider fans. And I broke my dad's heart and I went to UT, right? And um, so I lived in Lubbock for 30 seconds, like a semester okay. um, after I graduated college. So I already was familiar kind of with the panhandle. I was familiar with Palo Duro Canyon. Okay. I knew no one in Amarillo when I moved here. I knew my husband. That was it. Well, my boyfriend at the time, right? And so that was a huge deal. Um, it was quite, uh, I think at first it was really, really exciting. But I think coming into this town as a 30-something was kind of hard as well. And just making new friends and literally being alone um, had its own unique challenges. The culture of Amarillo is very different from Houston. Yeah. The climate is very different so from Houston. Different. Size is very different. I mean, what, what were some of the things that struck you <sighs> when you got here? Yeah. I as mean, an adult. I mean, it's not like arriving as a kid and your parents move you. I mean, you, you came here on purpose as, as a grown-up. So. Yeah, I chose it. And um, yeah, I think an easy answer would be the humidity. Um, I've had to, I mean, 10 years later, I'm still getting used to the dryness mm -hmm. of the culture. And, you know, there's a lot of good things about that. It's cool in the morning and it's cool at night. And it's not like that in Houston. No. It's pretty much blazing hot 24 hours a day, um, even into the winter, right? And so that would be my easy answer. My hard answer was, uh, to be frank, kind of the diversity. Um, when I lived in Houston, I my street... You know, there was a gay couple who lived down the street. Um, my next door neighbors were black. I had a neighbor who was Asian. You know, really just culturally, mm -hmm. ethnicity-wise, it ran the gamut. And um, that was kind of a, uh, an adjustment for me moving here. And, you know, I know that we, like per capita, have the most refugees, but I don't really see them in my life and in my world. And, um, you know, too, over the last couple of years, with just all of the racial challenges that have been taking place in our country, that's been a struggle. It's been kind of hard for me. Um, to go from a place that University of Houston mm -hmm. is one of the most diverse universities in the entire nation. I went to undergrad at UT, also a really diverse um, college as well. And um, to come here and, and feel like it was, it was just very different. Yeah. It's very easy here to only see the same kind of person, same kind yeah. of people, um, if you just stay like within one neighborhood. And it really takes an intentional... Yeah you know, focus of I'm going to go eat in this neighborhood today. I'm going to go drive a different way to get to work today. I'm going to pass through these other places because that diversity in Amarillo is there. It's but like there. you said, it's easy to not encounter yeah. it if you stay kind of confined to one place. Yeah, totally. That's, that's, that's one reason I like to do this podcast. Is so I love people, it. People hear different perspectives um, because we, I mean, we can be pretty insular. Um, tell me about your career. I mean, about, you know, moving here as an adult, like was, was there something that you had to, to transition as, as you made that? 
Move. Yeah. So at the time I was still in graduate school pursuing my doctorate in social psychology and I was teaching at U of H and um, Paul Matney was the yeah. president at AC and he actually went to our church and he is just a jewel of a man and um, helped me get a job at AC teaching. And so that was actually a pretty easy transition okay. and that was a pretty fun one. I really um, enjoyed that experience just coming in as a new um, adjunct and meeting some of my coworkers there. There's some really brilliant people at They're, AC. Absolutely. Yeah. What did you um, discover about AC? You know, it's, it's a college that has has changed a lot um, since I, I mean, I went there in the 90s. Um, it, it changed a lot during Paul Matney's tenure. It's grown a lot with Dr. Lowry Hart now. I mean, mm-hmm. what what can you tell me about the students you encountered there? Yeah, it was probably not, there were some differences and some similarities. U of H already mentioned was, uh, or is an incredibly diverse school. And so, I mean, it's like 30, 30, 30 ethnicity. And um, so uh, that was really cool for me to step into AC and see a lot of diversity in um, identities, but also diversity in life stage. Okay. That's something that I probably didn't encounter as much at a large state school. Um, where, a lot of returning students. Yeah, yeah, which is really inspiring to see um, moms whose kids have gone off to college and now they're wanting to pursue a new career for themselves. Um, so that's been really cool, yeah. I wonder what else you can tell me about... Amarillo and and the process of of moving to a new place, you know, when you are in your career, when you uh, are in the process of of sort of getting situated, is there a benefit to moving from this big community into a little bit smaller community? Mm. Or is that something that is kind of a hindrance? Yeah, I think initially I struggled um, because you would think a smaller community, you would have I mean, maybe my stereotype or perception would or misperception would have been that you would come into a smaller town and there'd be like a place for you and mm-hmm. you would be able to meet people easier. But I actually found it more difficult to meet people. And my husband at the time was working at our church. He was a minister at our church, super connected. And I still really struggled. Um, I think my narrative, or as Brene Brown would say, the story I'm telling myself is that um, people already kind of had their established friend groups. And there are a lot of folks here who have lived here for generations. And so they've got their families, you know, they're all good in terms of their needs socially. And um, yeah, it was kind of tough as a 30 something to make friends. You know, I think when you're a 30 something just in general, it's hard to make friends if you're starting over anywhere. Yeah. Um, but that seemed like a unique challenge that I wasn't expecting. I think I was um, super hopeful moving here that I would just kind of fit in with my husband's, um, you know, social uh, circles. And and it was it was more of a challenge than I expected. And a church setting is one of the easiest ways to do that. Yeah. Like, I mean, it, there, there's there's some built-in commonality there. Sure. Um, you know, outside that setting, it can be a little bit harder to, yeah. to meet people, to meet other couples in your same life stage, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Tell me about uh, your career then um, as as you landed at Emerald College, as you uh, kind of got your footing. How did it develop? 
Yeah, so um, I still teach at AC. I've been teaching there for, oh gosh, yeah, 10 years almost. Okay. And, um, and what kind of classes do you mostly I just teach, teach intro to psychology. Right. So my degree is in social psychology, but I have um, over the last almost 15 years taught all kinds of different psychology classes. Really my passion is teaching. Um, and um, so I also am a 500-hour yoga instructor. All right, and which so, is significant. Yeah, yeah it's super fun. Um, I've taught a lot of yoga classes around town and that's been really beautiful. Um, so I guess I want to say that my initial experience here in Amarillo was an adjustment that I would now these days I would use the words and say that it was challenging and it was difficult. Um, but you know, we're resilient type of people out here in the panhandle and just as Texans, I've been a Texan since I was five. And, um, I think just being able to make my own way, has been um, really redemptive and really beautiful. So being a yoga instructor, I've met a lot of really wonderful people. And yeah, so I started teaching yoga locally. And then people started asking me like, hey, do you have a YouTube channel or anything online? And I've taught online psychology classes for colleges right. and universities for uh, 11 years, I think it is now. And so I thought, how cool if I could teach online yoga classes. So I got into that. And then, um, yeah, my career has shifted over the last couple of years, just with my personal life and serving in a church and also, I guess, kind of helping people walk through their own faith journeys. And so now I work with people online and I help people who are struggling or going through faith change or faith crisis, or any kind of spiritual change, or we use the term deconstruction often in our community. And that's kind of my sole work now, is um, specifically helping women navigate the experience of faith change or faith crisis. How did you find your way into that specialization? Yeah. Um, I imagine there's a story there. <laughs> there's quite a few, few paths, right? So I realized I had this really beautiful background in psychology and had all of this knowledge. And for me, there's always been this desire to want to take that outside of academia. So I think it's really cool to be able to teach intro to psych classes, but sometimes as psychologists, we hoard all of that information for ourselves. And it's really great information like for the general public to know. Mm -hmm. And um, so there was that. My husband um, was a minister at our church. He left about, oh, I'm not even sure how many years ago now, several years ago to start a small business and worked with the WT Enterprise Center, actually. Okay. Great experience. Great. Yeah. Um, and... After he left to start his small business, you know, I think over the years, I'd kind of had some little deconstructionist tendencies and some questions, and especially being on the other side of things and being a minister's wife right. and getting to see the inner workings of how the structure of church works. I had some questions, but once he officially left ministry, it was like the bottom fell out for me. I was given the permission to really press into those questions and ask them for myself and pave my own way. And so um, as a 500-hour yoga instructor, I have all of this training and groundedness and meditation and, you know, dealing with stress and anxiety through breath and movement and things like that, my background in psychology, but then my personal experience with this thing that we call deconstruction and asking hard questions about church and religion and faith. So I'm, I'm going to put myself in 
the position of um, maybe most of my listeners okay. uh, who might come from a church background, who might still be faithful church yeah. attenders, and they hear you talking about the bottom falling out yeah. of your faith, and maybe to them that sounds like a negative thing, yeah, like something they've been trying to avoid all their totally. lives. Totally. Was that the case for you? You know, I think initially it was um, because it was super scary. And I think the thing, um, I feel like I exist in this work to help women who are experiencing this because it's super lonely. It's so lonely and it feels really hard and terrible at first. But another goal or passion of mine is to help people who aren't experiencing that understand it. There's a lot of people in the deconstruction community who are... Um, really existing to help the community who is experiencing the thing and they get really defensive and um, afraid to talk to people who are asking them questions from the outside. And that's not me at Mm -hmm. all. Um, I want to help those who know someone. Maybe you have a family member or a friend who's experiencing this. And I want to help them in a very diffused, like non-threatening way, understand what it is. So yeah, initially for me, it was so hard because my entire community was built around church at that time. You know, we were still going to my, our our church and, um, you know, my husband had just left ministry. I didn't feel safe enough to talk to him about it. So for years, I didn't even admit it to him that I was asking some of these questions and wrestling with some of these doubts and things. Um, So I did that alone for a very long time, which I'm here to say is not the way to do it. And so that's why I am pressing into this work. Uh, One of the primary things that I do is I have an online community for women where they can come in privately um, even anonymously in their own little communities and see that there are other people out there and find that solidarity and support. Um, As far as the bottom falling out or dropping out, that's how it felt at first. But for me, deconstruction is not a curse. So many times we um, classify it this way or we hear people talking about how it's dangerous. For me, it was an opportunity for growth, spiritual growth, authenticity. It was an opportunity for me to discover what I truly believed instead of what had just been told to me or interpreted Mm -hmm. for me. And it gave me a lot more ownership over my own faith, spirituality, my beliefs, my worldviews. And so to be honest, it's been the best thing in my life. Did you grow up in a Christian household, going to church all the time? Like, was that part of your identity all of your life? Born and raised. Which is, (laughs) you know, when you think about deconstruction, maybe we should explain what that term means, because it's kind of a fancy term, you it know, is fancy. for roots in postmodernism or whatever. <laughs> but but to, to let go of a faith structure that has been part of your identity for so long yeah. is not just saying, I'm not going to go to this church anymore, but it's like like, like there's a part of, of maybe your personality or a part of your entire life yeah. that gets dropped, or at least redefined. A part of you. Yeah. I mean, is that how you think of it from a psychologist standpoint from a mental health standpoint? Yeah, absolutely. So um, essentially the work that I do is not helping people determine what they believe necessarily. I I often say, I'm not here to tell you what to believe. I'm here to just help you, guide you through this experience, give you tools that are helpful. And many of those tools are what I call like integrated psychology, just figuring out what your identity is, learning how to set boundaries, right? All of these things that are great, um, 
to or for being an integrated human, right? So it's absolutely not just affecting the way that you think or the way that you believe. It affects who you are. It affects your very core. Tell me about doing that work in Amarillo. I know a lot of your clients are not based here. I mean, right. it's online, which means they could live anywhere. Um, but you are you are still living in a very uh, a very religiously conservative and centralized town. Yeah. You know, the first thing people ask you is where do you, where do you go to church? Right. Uh, plus you're coming from a church background and church staff background. Like, right. is this a hard place to, to focus on that kind of topic? Yeah. It's been interesting because the last 18 months have been unusual, right? So I've been able to live from home and do this work and probably not feel the same effects that I might if I were living my former life and being kind of, you know, out mm-hmm. and doing all these things every night. Um, but Yeah, I think it is. One of the things that I think is really cool about my work is that my community, I was thinking about this today, pulling up here. um, It's not really local as much anymore for me. It's this international community because of the nature of my work, which Mm -hmm. is online. So I do have a support system that, uh, you know, there's women in my community from, places like Zambia to Paris, France, to all over the country. And, you know, I'm also a part of a lot of female entrepreneur business support groups. And so I'm sitting on Zoom, you know, all day long with people from Germany and Italy and New Zealand. And um, so there's a big deconstruction community online. And uh, it's a really beautiful community in that they come together and support each other. So I don't feel ill supported, uh, is what I want to kind of preface all of that by saying. Um, But it is difficult because it's not the majority view. It's not the common thing. But I think what I want listeners to hear if um, they're trying to understand the concept and wrestling with it, is that it's something that people don't choose. You know, so often I I hear this, why would you choose to deconstruct? Mm -hmm. People slide into my DMs and send me emails asking, why would you choose to do this? Like you woke up and decided, I'm going to stop believing. You know what? I think I'm going to uproot my entire life, right? Um, And typically what happens is something, an experience, uh, an interpersonal relationship, something happens to a person and they find themselves in the spot. So Rob Bell is someone whom I love, and um, he often says, once you see, you can't unsee. Mm -hmm. And so for so many people that I work with who are going through deconstruction, even if they wanted to go back to where they were before, they can't, right? Because they've had this question, they've had this experience, they've had a church trauma or something like that that's happened, and now they have to work through that. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's, um, for me, encouraging people to find grace and compassion for people in a circumstance that maybe you don't understand, um, and making space for them to, you know, live out that experience authentically. And, you know, it, it may not feel like a good fit here in Amarillo, but when you look at statistics and you know some of the some of the religious surveys that are happening, yeah. you do see a rise in in what researchers call the nuns, people yeah. who do not adhere to any religion. That's right. Um, and and so a place like Amarillo may be a little bit in a bubble, protected yeah. from that. But there is a lot of growth, um, you know, in, in people who are in that place. And I wonder, like, is is this is your work, you know? 
ideal for the time that we're living in, maybe, mm. you know, after after having gone through the last yeah. few years, religious turmoil, the political turmoil, the social turmoil, I mean, is, is that a pretty common thing? Yeah, I think what's interesting, um, just listening to you talk there, is that I think there are a lot of us maybe in this area, um, but what's happening is it's a silent experience, right? Okay. And um, I work with a lot of women who live in rural areas, and so they don't have, you know, the local deconstruction group down the street in Seattle or whatever it is in L.A. Um, and so they're looking for that community, but they're living in communities like ours. And to me, that makes it more difficult because you're the odd man, right? Right. And um, so I think there's probably more of us in this community, and that's why, you know, I'm, I'm excited to be here today to maybe speak to that minority group who might be listening and and who might say, yeah, me too, you know, because for me, uh, years ago, it took a podcast. That's why I love okay. going on podcasts. I'm a huge supporter. Podcasts can be dangerous. They can be. Um, but uh, yeah, a friend of mine sent me a podcast on the Enneagram. I was like, cool, listen to this. And it was an entire podcast on deconstruction. Hmm. I had no idea this term existed. And it was like stepping into life for me, that there was this community of people, even people that I didn't know, who were experiencing this thing that I thought I was the only one experiencing. Um, but yeah, I have seen over the last year, the dial turn up for sure, okay. where um, there was definitely a rise of the nuns. That's the N-O-N-E-S, right? The nuns not affiliated with any kind of religion. And um, that was taking place before 2020, but just the nature of some of the things that happened leading up to and during the last 18 months or a year, it is like on steroids, the number of people who are taking to the internet trying to find community and help. I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit about the fact that your focus is is primarily on women, mm -hmm. you know, because when you're thinking about um, maybe religious beliefs and, and whether to hold on to them or deconstruct them, that's not that's not a gender right. thing, of course. But your your focus is kind of tuned that way, and I wonder why that is. Is is there a part of that um, that maybe a woman's experience? might have a little bit different flavor than a man's experience or, or different different things to work through maybe. Yeah. So there's two things for me. The first one is I'm a social psychologist and um, we study uh, ways in which people behave differently, um, are satisfied differently, um, enter into relationships differently, right? So there's really two things that are unique about women, and these are generalities, right? Anytime you hear any psychological research, it's always a generality. It's never a box we want to put people in. But women typically have two things uh, more than men, and that is relational identity, Okay. okay, so our identities are tied up more in our relationships. So I might ask you, like, Jason, what are some of the things that make you who you are? And you might say, I'm a podcaster. Um, you know, I have longer hair, all these things that are about who you are. Women are more likely to say, I'm a sister, I'm a mom, I'm a daughter, I'm a friend. So these identifying markers that are um, tied to our relationships. So what that lends itself to is something that we call relationship contingent self esteem Okay. So women typically have a, a greater sense of relationship contingent self-esteem. That means that our identities are more heavily tied to our relationships and our self-esteem is rooted in our relationships more deeply. So um, 
again, generalities. It's not that men can't feel these ways or, or experience these things. Um, so when our relationships are struggling or they're breaking down, not only does it affect our identity, but it affects our self-esteem. Okay. Whereas men are better at compartmentalizing things, right? So my marriage is over here. My work is over here, co-worker relationships. For women, when there's a struggle in a relationship, not only do I now feel bad about that relationship, I feel bad about myself. So there are unique challenges for women as they're going through this ostracizing experience of deconstruction. And relationships are one of the primary things that I hear that are are challenged and threatened through this experience. Um, But also for me, I'm really passionate about empowering women who have come out of church circles where women have been neglected and how women have been overlooked. That was absolutely um, my experience growing up in the Church of Christ, where women don't do a whole lot. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so I'm hoping to empower them to see that they're worthy and that, you know, they have gifts and we can use those um, in whatever way that works for you, whether it's to the glory of God or if God's not the thing that you're chasing after anymore, that you can use it to the glory of the goodness of of the collective society, whatever it is um, that you can give back by by those things that uh, make you who you are as a woman. And that is a that is an interesting thing to explore. And it, it's maybe something that it might make people uncomfortable. Uh, but I wonder if you found, you know, there are a lot of very conservative religious denominations like Church of Christ, like Southern Baptist, uh, and, and some others where women don't have that path toward being a pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, you rarely will see a woman in the in the pulpit. Right. Um, leadership roles can only go up to a certain level because of interpretations of scripture. Is is there a is there a psychological harm or barrier that that some women face because they have grown up in that? You know, maybe yeah. it's not on purpose, but that's just that's the air they breathe, you know, for 20 or 30 years. What yeah. what does that do to to someone? Man, the amount of stories that I hear of women who say, I grew up as a little one wanting to become a pastor, and I realized that I couldn't do that is heartbreaking. Because for me, you know, some days I still wrestle with what I even believe about the Bible and God and all of those things. But I think ultimately we're all here to make the world a better place Mm -hmm. and to steward people into a greater connection with each other and the earth and spirit or God or whatever, you know, the word is that you're using for God today or tomorrow or whatever that is. Um, You know, so I think that feels really sad to me that we would have people who are on fire for helping and even for God, if we want to use that language, right? Um, And they're basically told that they can't. And it's, it not only affects their uh, well-being, but it affects their Mm self-esteem. And then can you imagine what it might feel like if you felt like you had this calling on your life? This one thing, like, you know, uh, just to use a silly example, but your calling in life is to be a podcaster. And someone was like, you can't do that, Jason. Women can't do that. You can't do that. Then you you might be like, okay, well, I guess I'll go work at Whataburger or something, or I'll go work. Not that that is a lesser thing, but I might go be a lawyer. I might go, uh, I don't know, write books <laughs> or something like that. But the thing you really wanted to do was be a podcaster, and you were told that you couldn't do that just simply because of your identity. Mm-hmm. Man, can you imagine how that might that uh, you might wrestle with that, and how that would just be a day in and day out struggle? And I hear that all the time. Hmm. I'm interested in you living in Amarillo and, you know, being a, 
an entrepreneur, a small business owner, mm-hmm. um, whose work is primarily outside this area. Is, is this a good place to pursue that kind of work? I mean, have you found that maybe there's a difference between living in Houston and doing something like that and living in Amarillo? Is, is, is that any kind of difference or is... You know, I'm kind of okay being the odd man out. You know, I think my... Brene Brown talks a lot about this. Huge fan of Brene Brown. She's a UT grad and a UH yeah. grad too, right? Nothing controversial about <laughs> that. Everybody loves Brene Brown. <laughs> That's one thing I can say that everyone will clap to. Um, but yeah, she talks a lot about in her book, Braving the Wilderness, about feeling like she never fit in anywhere. And she talks about Maya Angelou in an interview that Maya had about not fitting in anywhere. And, you know, I feel like if I look back over my life, that's been my story, you know, like I moved around a little bit when I was a kid and I was always the new kid, moved here, I was the new kid when I was 30. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I think I'm okay with being the odd man out. And if it, if it matters, if it means something to one person in this community for, um, and there are those of us out there, there are those of us in my community who live here, um, Um, But if it matters to someone to feel seen and to feel known, I'm willing to go on a podcast and say some unpopular things, you know, because uh, I've been there. I've been the person not getting invited to the lunch table or if you want to talk about church, not getting a seat at the table to be on leadership or to speak to what the church is doing. And I think it's important. And so, you know, I go back to that thing that I said earlier about my community being international. I think I could live anywhere Mm -hmm. and it would be fine. I would get to do the same work that I'm doing. You know, I'm meeting people in California and Seattle and all these different places and and building friendships virtually through that. Um, So I feel like Amarillo, it's kind of the best of both worlds because I could live in some other city and um, and do that there and do it the same way that I am here. But I'm. I'm a unique character around Mm. here. And um, there are those of us out there, I know, who feel like they're the only one, and you're not. (laughs) I'm here. I'm here, too. Last question in in this section. Um, You know, you grew up in Houston. You said you're a Texan, and now you've lived in Amarillo for for more than a decade. Is is there a difference in the kind of Texan who lives (laughs) here versus the kind of Texan who lives in South Texas? Is, is, Is it all the same Texan, or is, is there some, uh, some differences? Okay, let me tell you. So um, I was born in Memphis, Tennessee. Okay. Then I moved to Houston. Then I moved to East Texas. Okay. Talk about a different also kind a different of place. Texan. And moved to Austin, had a brief stint in College Station, Lubbock. Um, yeah, I found my way back to Houston and now here. I may be missing. Oh, I lived in Dallas for a little bit. Yes. Yeah, so people say, oh, <laughs> Texans, like like Texans are this monolithic thing. No. You're saying that's not exactly true. Yeah, you've got an Austin Texan for sure. You've got the East Texan. And now you've got the deep East Texan, you know, because some people are like, well, Houston's East Texas. No, 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 no. That's, that's not like Piney Woods. That's not Piney Woods, which is where I mostly grew up as a kid. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think there are some commonalities. Uh, you know, I think we as Texans really value like resiliency and stick and the renegade spirit and um, being really, you know, hospitable and stuff like that. So there are some common threads, but um, it's kind of like, what was that movie? Um, 
with uh, Matthew McConaughey and Jack Black. And they talk about the different areas of Texas. And he's got like the map. Yeah. Oh, I can't think of that. Um, But I think it's exactly that. You know, there's the East Texan and there's the West Texan. But then there's the Panhandler. Mm -hmm. And then there's the Austinite, even the San Antonian. And yeah, the Houstonians are completely, completely different in many ways. The last thing I I wanted to ask is you, you know, you kind of ended up here in Amarillo because of eHarmony. (laughs) <laughs> um, do you look back at sort of your career path and, and path of your relationships and all those things? And um, does it feel like where you've kind of arrived in your journey is a surprise? Does it feel kind of a, a natural progression? I mean, is, is it weird to think, well, here I am in Amarillo doing this stuff? Or does it feel pretty much like it's the it's the right thing for you? Yeah. I mean, I think when I look back over the timeline – It all makes sense. You know, all the pieces come together and it's like uh, just this beautiful mosaic of different experiences. Some are hard. Some are great. Um, You know, uh, some were located in one area and now I'm here and that's different like we're talking about. Um, But it all just feels right. You know, it all just feels like everything has come together for me to give back to the world and to do good in the world. Um, I, I often tell this funny story. When I was in sixth grade, I started something called the Sunshine Committee. You'll appreciate this, having had a magazine, right? Um, don't you have a magazine? I do have a magazine, yeah. And um, yeah, so uh, I started the Sunshine Committee. It was a periodical, and I would like tell feel good stories from the school, and I would put in like inspirational quotes and comics to make people laugh and different things. That's that's very precocious. Yeah, in sixth, sixth grade, I wanted to like bring sunshine to the teachers, and we would do things for the teachers, like bring them flowers and baked goods and stuff like that. And you know, I was kind of a nerd. I, I wanted to save the whales, and you know, I was more interested in my science project than boys or whatever at that time. And it's just funny how we may change and ebb and flow over time and into adulthood, but we stay the same a lot of the way in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, it just feels right. Like here I am, I'm existing in the world with my new version of the sunshine committee. And um, yeah, it just feels really good. It's really life giving and, and I'm grateful. This episode of Hey Amarillo is sponsored by NCW, a local independent risk management agency. I have a number of friends who work at NCW. I know a lot of businesses that rely on them for their risk management expertise. But here's one of the things that impresses me most about this business. NCW has been operating in Amarillo for 95 years. That makes it one of the oldest continuously operating businesses in the city. NCW provides a full range of risk management strategies and solutions, including business insurance, group benefits, and personal lines. To learn more, visit ncwriskmanagement.com or call 806-376-6301. This podcast is also sponsored this week by Blue Handle Publishing. Blue Handle is a locally owned indie publisher, but they don't just have several great titles available by local authors, including Charles D'Amico and Andrew Brandt. They also, this summer rolled out their Book Puma editing services platform. And it's designed to help authors refine their manuscripts and really to reinvent the way authors and editors interact with each other. It's a great idea. Book Puma was even featured in the latest issue of Publishers Weekly over the summer. You can learn more about Blue Handle and their titles and learn more about Book Puma 
at bluehandlepublishing.com. Okay, I'm back with Katie Blake. Katie, this is a part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes a 1903 Ford Model A runabout that was vehicle number 28 of the 1700 that were ever produced. It's the oldest wow. assembly line vehicle in the world. You can see it at uh, Panhandle Plains. Learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, first question, and, and I've been asking this of, of all my guests over the past few months. What's one thing the pandemic or 2020 revealed to you about local people? Yeah, I think first um, I want to say something that I've already alluded to, but for me, my community is international. Mm -hmm. So throughout 2020, I was sitting on Zoom every week with people from New Zealand and Australia and Italy and Germany and Zambia and um, really watching in real time the international flex and evolution of how people across the world were responding to the pandemic. And so that was kind of a unique um, opportunity, I think, which made me struggle, I think, in some ways um, with just kind of seeing how uh, the United States and uh, more specifically regionally people were kind of responding. And, it's very um, different here than it is yeah. in, say, New Zealand, where they are uh, still very heavily locked down. Yeah, some of my friends, yeah, they're still, they can't leave their homes yeah. and things like that. So that's just been interesting to observe. Um, I think also my background in social psychology is specifically looking at um, cultural beliefs and how cultural beliefs affect how we interact in relationships and how we re interact in group circumstances and things like that. And so uh, like the easy way to explain it would be individualism and collectivism, mm -hmm. which many of us have heard of. So when we're talking about individualism, collectivism, it's a way we would measure groups or cultures. So we know in the United States that we are a very individualistic culture, right? But when you're looking at individuals, we wouldn't quantify you as individualistic or collectivistic. We use a measure that we call independent and interdependent self-control. And okay. it's all about how how you perceive yourself and your cultural beliefs and how you see yourself as connected to other people. So if you think of like a circle here and um, me is in the circle, right? So um, if you're an independent type of person, you view yourself as independent. There are other circles like around you and your spouse, your partner, your uh, family, your community members, friends, coworkers would all be in these circles. And they never overlap. You have me in the middle, right, in all of these circles. So there's still connections, right? Um, but there's no overlapping. There's no okay. interconnectedness. If you are an interdependent, self-controlled type of person, you have the me in the circle in the middle and all of the other bubbles where all of your loved ones exist, and those circles are overlapping. Okay. So it's a different way of viewing yourself as um, – not connected to others or interconnected to others. So I think what I've observed as a social scientist through 2020 and through the pandemic specifically is that in Texas, in um, rural areas, in the panhandle, we tend to confuse, I think, this idea of independence and really great uh, characteristics like resiliency and the renegade spirit and creativity and, you know, being entrepreneurial even. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there's a difference there where 
in our culture as the panhandle, I find that we are very independently minded. We don't see ourselves as interconnected. So like some of the measures, some of the ways that we would measure interdependent self-control is like if something bad happens to someone else, I feel like that bad thing happened to me as well, Mm -hmm. right? It's this concern for the greater good of the group. And, you know, I think I've just observed that and... um, and questioned if we are conflating this I, this really great idea of uh, resiliency and um, stick-to-itiveness and pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and that kind of thing, um, but losing some of the beauty of that interdependent quality of seeing ourselves as overlapping circles with not only each other, but with the earth and with, you know, just other living beings. And specifically, I have studied how that cultural belief affects the ways in which we support other people, we support each other. And so when we have this really independent mindset, we tend to not ask for support. Mm -hmm. And we tend to feel kind of resentful or icky about having to um, actually follow through and give support to other people. There are these barriers to social support. And one of the things that we know in psychology research is that um, social support is one of the main things that helps us feel healthy and whole and happy. And um, I think for me, uh, you know, I, I just am deconstructing what it means to be supportive for other people, what it means to do things that um, maybe don't feel like the best option for me in this moment, but might be the best option for the greater good of the group. And I've just been questioning how I can um, be self-aware of the ways in which I'm independent and interdependent and what the advantages and disadvantages of both of those things are and how maybe I can challenge myself to, um, you know, see myself as more interconnected with uh all other creatures, all other beings, all other humans. Um, so I don't know. That was a oh, kind of messy. I, I love that. I love that he from, from from that perspective. And that's one of the things that I think has been so frustrating to me is knowing how heavily this area identifies with evangelical Christianity. Yeah. Let's say where one of the core teachings of the gospel is concerned for others yeah. is is to love your neighbor as yourself. It's that idea of I I will sacrifice something for the greater good of yeah. someone else. Uh and to to take this, you know, singular I'm my own circle and these other circles are not going to butt up against me. So I only need to focus on me and not others uh is is a direct contradiction to that. But mm-hmm. I I'm sure a majority of the people with that mindset wouldn't recognize that as being anti-Christian right. at all, um, which is is really frustrating just from the perspective of somebody who has read the words of Jesus, you know? Yeah. Um, anyway, that's an interesting answer, and I, I appreciate you putting it in a, um, a psychological perspective. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think about specifically the ways in which our physicians and our healthcare workers have stood up behind microphones on podiums and said, we need your help. And one, like how hard it is for us, you know, because as a generality, me too, like uh, one of the funny things that people say in psychology research is like, look at whatever someone studies and you're going to find the thing that they struggle with. Hmm. And so that's so true for me. It's always been social support. I've always been like independent woman, you know, and I can do everything myself. So, uh, you know, I'm included in this, but it's very hard for us as 
independence to ask for help. Mm -hmm. So you got these physicians saying, we need this from you. And um, it's been really hard for me to watch uh, people in the community just say no. And um, I, because I know how bad that is for people's well-being mentally physically i mean just the research is vast on people who feel unsupported mm-hmm. and how it affects not only their emotional well-being but their their literal physical health and not they're not just saying no sometimes they're getting angry doing to have been asked yeah yeah and so you know it's tough for us to ask for help and they're doing this and and many of us we're looking at them and saying sorry you know we yeah. can't help you and that has uh it's been really hard for me heartbreaking okay well let's let's make a, a swift turn okay um, <laughs> what does this area have too much of goat head do you okay. know what a goat yeah, head the is? little the little burrs that stick on your socks when you walk through high that's grass. why when i walked in here i was like oh my goodness i'm gonna track all these thorns through his house uh yeah the goat head <laughs> okay I, uh, okay, I'll accept that because that's not something I think of, about at all because I've grown up with it. Yeah. I once was trying to do a trick on my bike and I flew over the handlebars and landed in a patch of that stuff. Oh, no. And my mom, like, embarrassing. I was like 12. My mom had to come out and like pick them all out of my oh. back and stuff. Um, but yeah, I, like, I just barely think about it because I've grown up here. So yeah. It may feel very different. Like, what are oh, these man. violent, alien, violent, things? yeah. yeah. What does this area not have enough of? You know, my big fear is that we don't have enough water. Mm-hmm. Really afraid about that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's legitimate. I, I hope there are people smarter than me who are thinking about that all the time. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area? Oh my gosh, do you know that most people don't even know that the Palo Duro Canyon is here? That is mm-hmm. my first thing. So I have a friend, she lives on an island actually outside of Seattle. She's RVing through the country, you know, going the old routes to 66 across I-40. And I was like, hey, when you're down here, did you know the second largest canyon in the entire nation is in our backyard? And nine times, Actually, I would say 99% of the time that I tell people that they're like, what, you know? Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think when I'm trying to describe it to people, I use that as uh, my first go-to because I really think that Amarillo has a lot of unique beauty. Um, The Panhandle, I mean, the Palo Duro Canyon, for example, Um, just the skies, the sunsets. For me, I'm an astronomy lover. And so I like to get my uh, telescope out and look at, you know, Saturn recently and Mm -hmm. um, Jupiter and those kinds of things. Um, And, you know, I think it's important for people who live in other places to realize that we do have our own unique beauty here. And uh, we're stereotyped so often with dust storms and flatlands and no trees. And uh, there's a lot of magical mystery and beauty and wonder here. What's your favorite street in Amarillo? Uh, the streets of Wolflin. Okay. All the trees. All of the streets then. Yeah. Just, I mean, I love the trees that hang over. It feels mm-hmm. like feels like home, like East Texas or Tennessee to me. Okay. Yeah. That probably is the most East Texas feeling yeah. part of the, the city, just because those trees are so old. What's your favorite local restaurant? Ah, uh, El Teavon. I love the tacos there. Okay. Which El Teavon do you go to? Ooh, the one on I-40. Okay. Yeah. The, uh, the... One near Tascosa or the one further near east? Tascosa. Okay. Oh wait, so where that's is the number other one? two? That's <gasps> the, the original El Teavon is further east. I had no idea where. Menus are the same. Uh, it, it's along I forty, closer to Grand. Okay. Of that, but I had no idea. So see, yeah. I'm a transplant. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so uh, still, that's that's a 
that's a good answer for legitimate. Yeah, Mexican it's so food, good. So. It reminds me just like great street tacos. Yes, yeah. absolutely. What's your favorite local coffee shop? Ooh. Okay, I love Palace and Canyon um, because of the feel. But I'm going to have yet again another unpopular answer and say Starbucks. Ooh, that uh, is unpopular. It's like a punch to the gut. I know. But here's the thing I want to say about that. Um, I do love Palace because I love the feel. You know, I used to walk in there and see all my buds and it would be like this great cheers moment, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I think we need to remember too that people in our community work at Starbucks. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's one of the highlights of my day to drive through there or to walk in there and to see the smiling faces and the people that are like, hey, how's your day? And, uh, you know, they're a part of our community too. And, um, yeah, I'm a Starbucks fan. Sorry. I think that's a, that's that's <laughs> an interesting perspective because we do often think so much, all right, let's support local businesses and we don't, you know, don't give your money to the chains, blah, blah, blah. But like the people employed by those mm-hmm. chains live here in Amarillo. Oh, like yeah. that's, those tips go to them, you know. And, and they're kind, And gracious. they're not like the enemy of they're anybody. They're just doing a job. Baristas, yeah. yeah. When was the last time you visited Cadillac Ranch? Okay, so in 2011, when I um, met my husband online, my now husband, uh, I came up to Amarillo for the first time, and Mm -hmm. he showed me, like, Coyote Bluff, and uh, we went to Cadillac Ranch, and he had spray paint, and we, you know, put, like, M plus K heart around it, all those things, yeah. Uh, We were probably too old to be doing that, but it was fun, and I got to say, I'm sad to say that's the last time I've been, so, like, (laughs) 10 years ago. At least you have been there. Was it on your radar at all when you came to Amarillo? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I do recommend it to folks. So when people come up here, you know, like uh, for our wedding or whatever, I put that on, you know, here's some of the to do things that you should do. Um, I definitely think it's something everyone should do as, you know, just a road trip, um, cool spot. But yeah. Okay. Katie, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would want listeners to know about or to experience? Okay. So I wanted to come up with something unique, but because uh, I know you already promote the Panhandle Plains Historical Museum, mm-hmm. but I got to give a shout out to those guys okay. because some of the coolest, nicest, most thoughtful people I've ever met either work there, intern there, or connected there somehow. So I used to teach yoga classes for them. And And um, January 2020, I taught a yoga class. They asked me to uh, lead in one of their art installations. And so their art director asked me to come up with themes for each class. And he went and picked out art that matched the theme. And they would display the art in the room. And we would practice yoga. It was the most intentional, well-thought-out just um, experience that they were trying to create for the community. And I think they're doing so many cool things and I just love those guys. I agree. All right. Well, Dr. Katie Blake, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This was a blast. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Dr. Katie Blake for the interview. You can find out more about her work at drkatieblake.com. As always, thanks to Angelina Marie for editing this week's episode. I also want to express my gratitude to the sponsors of this week's show, NCW, Lazy Boy Home Furnishings, and Blue Handle Publishing. I really do appreciate their support. I also am so grateful for Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for sponsoring eight straight every week. That's a lot of fun. This podcast exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and because of the local people who support it financially. You can do that if you're interested through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Heyamarillo's executive producers through Patreon include Jason Burr, Katie Linger, 
Jess Heredia, Barbara and Jim Witten, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, Wilson Lemieux, and Wes Reeves. This has been episode 214. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>